Good morning. Man, I'm not sure I can make it all the way through this morning, so. This, as I've gone deeper and deeper into the Apostles' Creed, it has begun to unfold and expand. It's kind of like one of those, um, did you ever have the toys when you were a kid, that the sponges that were very, very dry and you poured water on them and they just kind of started coming up into life? That's what the Apostles' Creed has been for me. It started out being just words and it has turned into something that is brimming with life. And I wanted to, um, there's partially the geek in me that goes, now where did this come from, this idea of creed? Why do we call it a creed? And I went and looked and here's what I found, is that when we call it the creed, we're actually keying in on what it originally sounded like in Latin. And so we're gonna see here how it starts. I think we'll see how it starts. So where did creed come from? In Latin there, you can see that the whole thing where we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty in English, in Latin, what does it start with? Credo in Deum. So that first word, credo in Deum, credo actually means I believe in Latin. So when we're saying the creed, we're saying an I believe. It is inherently an I believe statement. But notice also, it's not I believe that. It is I believe in. And there's a big difference between I believe that, because that can be a philosophical set of beliefs. Sure, I believe that. But I believe in means I have entered into something that is shaping and forming me. And it's not just a something, it is a someone. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that what we're going to talk about this morning, we talked about I believe in God the Father Almighty last week. And this week we're going to dive into the next part, the I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And what I want to do is as we go into those words, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. We're going to take those words and we're going to expand them like those sponges and see what emerges out of there. The first word is that, is I believe in Jesus. Jesus is the name of a man who lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. He was born in a very small, very dry and dusty little town full of rocks and dust and dirt. I got to visit there a couple years ago, and it was a hot, dusty, dry day. So I kept thinking, these are the kinds of stickers and weeds that Jesus walked around on as a boy and as a man in this town. This is the rock that he chiseled away at. He was born into a family. He had grandparents. Do you ever think about Jesus having grandparents? He had brothers. We know the names of four of his brothers. He had sisters. At one point in the scripture, it says, and all of his sisters. Now, I don't know how many all of his sisters is, but it's at least two. I would assume three, perhaps. So Jesus had brothers and sisters. He was in a family. I would assume that at some point as they were growing up, because he lived in that place until he was 30 years old, that in that time, his brothers and sisters got married and started having children. Jesus was an uncle. Nieces and nephews. No wonder he liked little kids. 
He'd grown up with little giggling kids. He understood them. He knew he was in a family. So Jesus is this very specific name, but it also is a name that was given to Mary. The angel told her, you're going to call him Jesus because Jesus is a um, Hebrew name, Yeshua, and it means God is salvation. So embedded in the very name Jesus is a hint that there is salvation coming. The next one that we encounter is Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, often we might think of Jesus Christ being like maybe Christ is his last name or something. <laughs> it's not. Christ is a title. It's not a name. It's a title. And it means the anointed one. So I believe in Jesus, the anointed one. And where it comes from, again, is Hebrew. And this, all the way through the Old Testament, God has said there's going to be an anointed Savior who is coming. He's going to be a rescuer king for you. And in Hebrew, that word is Messiah. That's what anointed one means in Hebrew. In Greek, it sounds like Christ. That's the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. So when we're saying Jesus Christ, we're saying, I believe in this man 2,000 years ago in the Middle East who bore the title Christ, the anointed one, the king who was to come and save us. So you already notice that in there, we already have Savior showing up twice in both of those titles and names. The idea of Savior is in both of those. <clears throat> Excuse me. But then in the next part of the creed, we get to this little phrase that says, his only son. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. What does his only son refer to? Well, it goes back to the beginning of the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And then it goes underneath that. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. God, the Father Almighty's only son. And those next words we have down there explain and expand how this only son thing happened. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We're going to camp on this a little bit because this phrase, his only son, all if Jesus Christ was more than just a man who lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, who was a savior king of the Israel nation, God incarnate. God, incarnation comes from Latin words meaning flesh. It means God in the flesh. God put on flesh. God put on a body and came to earth. If that is true, history shifts and pivots on its axis. And frankly, if that's not true, we should all pack up right now, literally, and go home. Like, it is that big. If this is not true, we need to sell this building and go off and do something else on a Sunday morning. Seriously, there are other things we could be doing right now if this isn't true. There's not a halfway ground where we're like, oh, we're going to kind of do the nice, normal Christian thing. This is not nice and normal. <laughs> this is a what? God on earth? God came as a human being? God interfering? With earth, God present in human flesh, it's an, this or this. There's not a normal, dry, dusty something in the middle here that we can kind of take or leave. Taking or leaving it is not an option. I mean, you can live that way, 
but you're either in or we need to go home. And we're here, I'm in. Um, as I have thought about this, I have realized that I have staked my life on this being true. And if this is not true, I am living a stupid life. I really am. If this is true, I'm living a wise pathway. It is that big. We need to get to the place where we stake our entire life on this and where if this disintegrates, our life disintegrates. That's what we're talking about here. It's that explosive. We look at this and we say, how, what was this like? How did this happen? What was this man slash God in the flesh like? And it is so hard to get our minds around that. The early church wrestled for hundreds of years getting their minds around that. And an early theologian named Origen, who lived in North Africa, has this amazing picture that he came up with of what this is like. And he pictured, and you know he saw this at a local blacksmith shop. This did not come out of nowhere for him. He pictured iron, that it was in the fire and it was glowing hot. Can you picture that red hot iron if you've seen pictures of it? And he's saying that is a picture of what this fusion of God and man was like in Jesus, glowing hot iron. Here's a theologian talking about this, and he's quoting Origen. The iron has become holy fire, since nothing else is discerned in it except fire. And if anyone were to attempt to touch or handle it, he would feel the power not of iron, but of fire. That's what happened when people got around Jesus. Iron and fire, and the fire flashed out of them. And the theologian that I was reading went on to say, Jesus is truly human, nothing more than iron. He is also truly divine, nothing but fire. He is born of a woman. He is conceived of the Spirit. He is human. He is divine. He is iron. He is fire. This beautiful combination of iron and fire. And you get close to red-hot iron and you know it. Something flashes out that is different, that shifts, that changes your life. You would expect if you got close to that, that people might be healed. That people might be changed. That people might be transformed. That something would happen. And so we have four Gospels in the Bible that say, here, look at this iron plus fire walking through the earth four times. Look at this picture. Look at this picture. Look at this picture. Now look at it from this angle. Now see it here. Do you see it here? Do you see what happens? And all the way through the Gospels, you have these people who are looking at Jesus with what? And whoa. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of, they're going back and forth between those two things, and they're wrestling with who is he and how can he be, because they're seeing iron and fire together, and they're trying to make sense of it. Another theologian, again, Northern Africa, Alexandria, produced a great many of these. This is a guy called Athanasius, and he lived about 100 years after um, the first guy I talked about, so we're about two, three hundred years after Jesus, a long time ago, and they're working to sort out who this is. And they are combating heresies of the day, people who are saying, eh, 
uh, Jesus wasn't really a man. Maybe he was an emanation of some kind from God, just some kind of manifestation of God's energy. That's why the creed is so careful to say he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born. He wasn't some kind of emanation that for the, of God that just kind of appeared like an angel might appear out of the blue and then disappears. He was born fully human. And Athanasius is saying one of the reasons that happened is so he could live among us for 30 years and establish himself as fully human. Nobody who saw Jesus doubted that he was human. In fact, that was one of their major um, difficulties. They were like, we know where this guy grew up. How can he be doing this? Because he's the son of Joseph and Mary. We know this guy. So there was no doubt that he was fully human. But do you know what else those 30 years did? 30 years Jesus lived in that small town. None of this fire flashing out. Jesus lived there. And I've often looked at that and thought, God subjected himself to time. It didn't have to take that long. Jesus could have come. Next week, we could have done the atonement thing. We could have gotten it over with. We could have done the resurrection. It would have been finished. It didn't have to take 33 years. And yet Jesus said, human life, the way I created it, is so valuable that I'm going to come and live it. Ordinary life is so good the way I created it with my image stamped on each one of you that I'm going to come and live it and show you what it looks like. He said, this is what my desire was for you and I'm going to live this thing that I created for you. Athanasius goes on to talk about and say, it's only the creator that could come and lift up the creation like that. Jesus created and then he came back and he saw this image he had placed on us that was crumbling and disintegrating and falling apart. And he said, I'm going to recreate this image of myself and you. I'm not going to leave you crumbling and disintegrated. I'm going to show you what it looks like when I come and live this and it's good. Athanasius has this wonderful picture that he talks about of what it's like when Jesus came to do this. He says, picture a city, and this city is built of stone, and it is crumbling, and the walls are falling down. The inhabitants have been careless, and this city is us and humanity. And he's saying the inhabitants have been careless with it. They've allowed corruption in. And there's bandits at the edge that are coming and they're attacking the city. There's marauders that are coming through. The inhabitants are letting whatever happens, happens. And the king who founded the city itself says, that is my city. This is not going to happen. And the king moves into the city. He buys a house in the city. The moving man pulls up, the moving wagon, pulls up. The king unloads all his household goods, and he moves in to one of the houses in the city. This powerful founding king now lives on a particular street in a particular house in that city. And because he lives there, the whole city is raised up out of the mud and the crumbling and the ruin. Imagine what would happen 
picture ordinary small town somewhere in western Oklahoma, tiny town, a little bit crumbling, long past the days when it was founded with lots of hope. And the governor's mansion moves to that little tiny crumbling town in western Oklahoma. Wouldn't that change the town? That's what happened when Jesus moved in, in the flesh, in the body, into Nazareth, into humanity. He began raising the entire city. And because God is good, he said, I'm not just going to live here. I'm going to begin restoring the streets. And the bandits are like, whoa, can't attack anymore because the king's here. So the bandits that are nibbling at the edges are already defeated. And the inhabitants now have a picture of, oh, the carelessness and the deceit that we were living under, we can't do anymore. Now, Jesus needed the atonement to defeat death and corruption and disintegration entirely. And so, of course, it was necessary to fulfill the whole scope and go into the atonement on the cross, death, burial, and resurrection, where the creed is going to go next. But even before then, just by being in the city, he raised the entire thing. And that's where we get to live now. Woohoo! That is good news. You see in the Gospels, everybody is grappling with this, trying to figure out, trying to figure out who Jesus is. Is he really raising the city like we think he is? And one of the people that I love in the Gospels is the um, disciple named Thomas. We don't know very much about him, but I've always been attracted to the very few passages that mention him. And I think one of the reasons is because this guy says what I would say if I were there. So I look at Thomas and I'm like, yeah, that's what I would say. Thank you, Thomas. The first time we see him, it was just right before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus hasn't gone over to Bethany yet to do the miracle. He and the disciples are away. And Jesus is saying, well, I've got to go there. And the disciples are like, um, you know, the last time we were there, they tried to kill you, right? And Jesus obviously doesn't care about that. And Thomas pipes up and says, well, then we have to go with him so we can die with him too. Now, that is some sturdy followership right there. So this man is not a slouch. He's not on the edges. He's fully aware, very clear-eyed, that if he goes with Jesus, he might get killed. Because Jesus might get killed, and he's right there. And so you kill the, the leader and the followers. The next time we see Thomas is at the Last Supper. So picture we're in Jerusalem now. Jesus is going to get killed. Within 24 hours, he'll be dead. This is the Last Supper. Jesus has just watched Peter's feet, and he sat back down at the table, and Jesus now begins to tell them what's going to happen. And Jesus, we're in, um, we're in John 14 with this. And Jesus says to them, I'm going to leave, and where I'm going to go, you can't come. But then I believe we have John 14 that we can put up for you. We're in John 14, verse 3. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Again, that's what I would say. Jesus answered, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Going, so how can I know the way to get there? That is a very human question, and Jesus gives it an incredibly heaven-minded answer. He gives it the fire flashing out, and he looks at him and he says, Thomas, I am the way. Thomas was saying, what road do we take? And Jesus is saying, I'm the road. The way lies straight through me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's saying, I was here with you, and I'm showing you the way to the Father. And if you want to get where I'm going, you do that through me. It's a powerful statement in answer to a very ordinary, puzzled, confused human question. The way lies straight through Jesus. That's why this part of the creed matters so much, because the way for us to God the Father Almighty lies through the pathway of Jesus, who's saying, I am the truth, the way, the life. Believe in me, not in a proposition, not in a general philosophical principle. Believe in me because I am the way. There's a pathway going straight through him. This is why it demands a response, because you're face-to-face -face with Jesus. And the next time we see Thomas, well, the next couple of times, we also see him in that face-to-face -face place. So we're going to jump forward to the next place in the creed. So we have Jesus, this iron and fire in the flesh. And then the last part of that bit says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And that's where it all opens up, because our Lord is saying we have a king and an authoritative God, and he is our Lord, not just mine, not just yours, our Lord. It puts sovereignty firmly in place and says there is a response demanded here, and there is a journey that is involved, and there is an authority to be acknowledged, and it really doesn't matter at all. It's not like I can say, okay, well, fine, Brock can think that Jesus is his Lord, but I can, you know, I don't really have to. What I think about it really doesn't change who Jesus is. So it's not me saying, our Lord, and I create and exalt him to that place. He is in that place. And when I say our Lord, I'm acknowledging reality and truth. I'm not creating it. I'm acknowledging it. He is Lord. He is God. As I got to this place in the creed and I started looking at this, I realized how explosive this is because my life changes if I have a Our Lord in place. That changes everything. I can't be singing I did it my way. That is an unallowed song if I have an Our Lord. If there is an authority, it is not me. In fact, one of the early theologians and writers, this time from a um, what is now modern-day Tur Turkey, Gregory of Nyssa, he looked at this and he said, this is an argument against slavery. He wasn't looking at human rights or equality. He was looking at this and saying to slave owners, listen to what he said, you have forgotten the limits of your authority. He said, there's only one Lord, and that Lord does not enslave 
that Lord frees people. So this turned into an explosive argument even against slavery because we are not lords of each other. There is one Lord, and it is not us. And there's a goodness and a demand in that. As I looked at this more and more, I kept thinking, I feel like we should have handed everybody a crash helmet and welding gloves when you came in this morning. Because we start touching this, and the fire begins to flare out. And it affects us. And it shifts. And it changes your life. So it's almost that feeling of, boy, if you do not want to be messed with, do not start digging into the Apostles' Creed. (laughs) Just... There's, there's stuff there that it's going to mess with your life. And it messed with Thomas. He had to go on this journey from, yeah, I'll die with you. And, oh, wait, you're the way through which I need to go? And then the final time that we see him, this is after the resurrection. And so we're in John 20 now. And the disciples are back again in a room. And here's what happened this time. Jesus had come on Sunday evening right after he was resurrected that morning, and he showed himself to the disciples. And the disciples are in awe and amazed, and they are in wonder, and life just changed for them, and they're rejoicing, and they're partying, but not Thomas. Because Thomas, also known as Didymus, it means the twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. So you have the disciples who are enthused beyond degree and they're like, we have seen him. And Thomas is saying, I didn't. I didn't see him, and unless I see him, and I see those wounds, and I know it's really him, I am not going to believe. Now, I don't know what led Thomas to that point. We casually call him Doubting Thomas. This is not a casual man. This is not somebody who takes any of this casually. I don't know if the pain and the hurt of watching this man be executed and then not seeing The grief of it, the guilt of perhaps running away was still on him. I don't know what was on him, but there was something in him saying, I haven't seen, I haven't seen, and I'm not going to believe until I do. And he waited in that state for a week, a week, a week is a long time when everybody around you is partying and they're enthused and they're enthusiastic and you're hearing bits and pieces of rumors and you don't know. I think I might have gone further into my stance of, I got to see it to believe. And I can imagine the disciples trying to talk him into it and convince him, no, Thomas, we really did see him. It was like this and he said this and it happened here. It was really true. And Thomas is like, I didn't see it. So a week later, The disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand 
and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And I love that interaction because here's Thomas stuck in this place. And Jesus comes straight to him and he holds out his hand and he says, put your finger here. And here must have been one of those wounds that the nails went through on the cross. And then he says, put your hand, not just on my side, in my side. Feel that wound where the sword pierced me. Now, I started imagining what it would be like to have Jesus say, put your hand here. Put your hand on my side, feel it. And I thought, you know, I bet I could like call somebody like Bethany to come up and like we could demonstrate what this would like, was like. And then I was like, ooh, I can't do that because do you know how close she would have to get to me to put her hand on my side like that and social distancing and it's going to be awkward and we just can't do it. And then I realized that's the point. If you put your hand on someone's side, you're face to face with them. You're not millions of miles or hundreds of feet away. You're like this, and you've got your hand on their side. And Jesus is face to face with Thomas, and he's saying, I'm going to meet you here face to face. Put your hand on my side. Stop doubting. Believe. He's looking Thomas in the eye as he says that. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus held out his hand, and he offered a way for Thomas to cross the chasm that Thomas couldn't get across on his own. Stop doubting. Believe face to face. And I think that picture is the picture of the place where we grapple with the what of who Jesus is. Come face to face and grapple all you want. Ask all your questions. Be in that place, but do it face to face. And let Jesus speak to you. That's going to change your questions. Still ask them. Still ask everything that's there. Still ask all the things you're confused about, but do it face to face with your hand feeling the wound. Then you're going to get the full picture of who Jesus is. This full picture has turned into an unlikely kind of refuge for me. And I found words in, of all places, the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord have mercy, which is not something I would go around reading. I've got to tell you, it was written 500 years ago, and I'm not a big fan of German catechisms. And yet I found in this words that put into, um, that put my life into words so well that I may not be able to get through it without crying, because every time I read this, I cry. And a catechism is a way of training and discipling people in the faith, so it's a question-and-answer format. And the catechism poses this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer. I may have to have somebody else read it. That I, both body and soul, in life and in death, am not my own but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is my comfort. That is the claim on me. That's my claim on him. 
That's the life changer. That's what the I believe in will do to you. Sometimes we are the one asking the questions. Sometimes we stand and we be the Jesus for someone else asking the questions. And we're the ones who stay face to face with them. Sometimes we enter in and we say, I believe. And I want to call to mind a way that we've been using to enter in. You may have noticed by now how close Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, is to the Jesus prayer that we've been singing and praying. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And as we see these words unfold, we realize that mercy is baked in. Son of God includes mercy. Son of God only exists because there's mercy and there's grace and there's hope and there's compassion and there's a father and there's affection and there's tenderness. So just saying the words themselves, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, means you are already saying there is a father who loved me, who came to redeem, to lift me up, to restamp, to rebuild the city. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, I'm not begging you to have mercy. I'm stepping into the mercy that exists because you exist. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Thank you, Connie. Band coming up here. We're going to sing the Jesus prayer in a moment. Sensing the Lord working. I don't know about you, but I feel it. Anybody else? We're returning to the roots, looking at what the scriptures teach about Jesus. And I've shared with you several times that I've got a little Thomas in me. And Amanda turned to me while Connie was preaching and said, isn't it amazing that the Lord makes space for Thomas? I mean, he, the Lord is not intimidated by Thomas. There's no question. There's no doubt. There's no unbelief that the Lord goes, ooh, I can't deal with that. He fully embraces all of it all of us. And so I'm just sensing that the Lord's working in some of us this morning, some of you, and you can feel it. I've got some doubt. I've got some unbelief. I've kept the Lord at, at bay here. I've kept him out here. And so this morning, I actually, I'm ready for him. I want him to be close. And I want to give him myself afresh this morning. So we're, we're just going to take a moment here. And what we're going to do, we're going to say the, the Jesus prayer. We're going to sing it. But I want to just make space for that. So let's just, uh, let's take a moment here to, to be quiet and you talk with the Lord. What's the Lord pinpointing in your heart, in your mind? And again, he replaces doubt and unbelief and anger and hurt with faith. His love drives fear out and unbelief. So let's just, you talk with him. Let's just take a minute here. You converse with him. You pray. Open yourself to him. <laughs> 
as we move into singing this, I want to encourage you. It, this may involve coming up here this morning. You may want to come up here and spread out, and you may want to give yourself afresh to Jesus. Give your, your doubts, your unbelief, your questions. It may mean kneeling where you are. It may mean sitting there. Here in a minute, too, we're going to make uh, space for ministry time. I'm going to have Al come up in just a few minutes. But right now, let's just focus on the mercy of Jesus. Jesus, we receive your mercy. Let's sing it.